So uh, that, that's my story about Interrail. Uh, thanks for having me on the program, and I hope that's uh, been of interest. Cheers for now. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a podcast looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Denby with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. Hello. I'm still recovering from my running injury. I'm certainly moving a bit more freely, but it still hurts to put too much weight on it, and I'm still walking with a stick of doom, which, I mean, it's clearly a household implement and not at all elegant or practical, but it does seem to be helping me a bit. I'm conscious that I'm maybe relying on it a bit too much, but I think that's, you know, better than limping a lot and causing excess usage. I'm also starting to use it more within the flat rather than relying on the office chair, which, while fun, is also horrendously impractical, especially as for most efficiency, I have to go backwards. For someone already blessed with dyspraxia, that's a fun time. I haven't broken anything yet, but it's, you know, clearly only a matter of time. Speaking of neurodiversity, by the way, some exciting and unexpected news. A couple of weeks ago, I filled in a form the doctor gave me around ADHD, I didn't think anything of it, but the Friday after my previous Interrail podcast, I had a mail, snail mail, telling me I'd been referred to an ADHD specialist. Yay! Well, you might think this is a yay moment, but it was 23 pages of paperwork, mostly questionnaires, that had to be filled in within the next four weeks. This, right here, is gatekeeping at its finest. Oh, you've got ADHD and so have difficulty meeting deadlines and doing admin. Here's a lot of admin and you only have a month to do it. Fortunately, I have friends who force me to do it and sit with me while I'm on the phone to them and go through every single sheet. One of the questionnaires was assessing how I was around the age of seven, which involved speaking with my uncle, who, when I raised the concept, and I was a bit concerned as to how he'd react given I'm of the generation where this was only starting to be a thing, where ADD, as was, was something that was a synonym for naughty and hyperactive child. His response was, yeah, I always thought of you more as autistic, you know? Certainly further along that spectrum than I am. So, cheers for that. When going through it, though, we realised several things. As an only child with a dominant and house-proud grandmother, it was hard to answer a few of the questions because they you know, simply didn't apply. Like, did my issues affect tasks and chores? Well, I didn't have any because my grandmother did it all. Did I forget things? Well, no, because my grandmother packed everything for me. Did I have issues with waiting my turn or interactions with other children? Like, dude, I never had to, so it was never a problem. And what was also clear is we uh, really didn't know what an average seven-year-old was like. He's never had one of his own, and though his wife's youngest daughter has kids who are in that ballpark, he's obviously the grandparent who only sees them occasionally, rather than having a direct knowledge of their behaviour. The other thing that was perfectly obvious and annoyingly awkward when it comes to questionnaires like this is that I was seven years old in 1982. 40 years. A long ass time to remember some of these things with any degree of clarity. So much of the time, even he didn't really know. And especially for what I was like at school, because, oh no, obviously, he wasn't there. I suppose I could have asked one of my old school friends. I might just do that, just for completeness anyway. Yeah, I know more people I went to primary school with than secondary school with. It's quite interesting. And I'm also conscious that many of my issues only started with a change to secondary school. My therapist is aware of that. Yes. I am conscious that you, listeners, are not my therapist. I wonder how many podcasters do that. Anyway, I've sent it off, complete with photos to my friends for accountability and proof that it's not just resting on my living room table. Alongside the steroid cream I got on my first visit to the doctors for the weird skin thing on my right leg that people have been concerned about on my running selfies for years. And by people, I mean my friend Layla. So we'll see what happened about that. Obviously, in the days since I've sent it, I've thought of several other things I could have written in. But let's face it, the questionnaires already look like a mess of notes and written asides. Not bad for what was supposed to be a tick box exercise. In other housekeeping, my VA has edited and published a long-form video to YouTube that's basically an introduction to who I am. It's eight and a half minutes long, and she naively sent it to me to check through. 
Like, I don't watch eight-minute videos at the best of times. Watching an eight-minute video of me looking gormless in front of camera is not my idea of fun. And besides, I trust her to edit that video better than I could. That's one reason why I hired her. I concede the bar on that is low. But that's why I'm going to Malta for the weekend after Easter for the Traverse cre Video Creation Workshop. Not to get better, but so I can pass on tips to her. You might wonder why she's not going herself. You'll know the answer to that if you listen to my episode on travel privilege. Speaking of privilege and the hierarchy of people and cultures with and without it, I was recently featured on a website answering questions about trans joy. I'm aware I'm not trans. Shop Victoria. However, non-binary identities do fall under the banner at a holistic level, in the same way that strawberries and tomatoes are both plants. It was for someone called Caledonia Kelly. The link will be in the show notes, but she wanted to create a site with positive affirmations about gender orientation because, well, the world's a bit pants on that score right now. So go give it a read. On a travel bent, I also contributed to another website recently, Happy Little Traveller. They were looking for people to talk about anxiety and fear while travelling, so I was one of several people who contributed. Regular listeners will know about my issues around anxiety, especially social anxiety, and how I mitigate for my fear of the unknown with knowledge, and all of that came out in my contribution, which was a trifle long, I suspect, certainly compared to the others, but hey, I had a lot to say, so, you know, it was suitable, I guess. Again, link in show notes, go check it out. Right, it's enough about housekeeping, on with the show. So, if you recall, my last proper episode was all about my interrail trip in 2000 and how times and events had changed. I wanted to spend this episode talking a bit about my follow-up interrail trip in 2019, which was very different in scope, duration and overall vibe. But this is all actually going to cover two podcasts, as it appears travelling around Europe for two months means there's quite a lot to say. Plus it gives more time for some of the contributions to come in. Yes, Amanda, that's a direct subtweet to you. I hope you've enjoyed working this week in a small mining town in the literal Australian outback. I would say even I have my limits, but that's almost certainly not true. But firstly, and speaking of contributions, I want to directly follow on from my last episode by bringing in a couple of people who did Interrail before I did. And when I say before I did, while not as further back in time than the years between my two trips, it's not that far off. Firstly, let me bring in Alison from the Alison in Andalusia blog and website. She took her trip just over a decade before I did, when the world was a very different place. I went interrailing in the summer of 1988 at the end of my first year at uni. As a student back then, there were three popular ways to spend your summer holidays. You either went interrailing, did Camp America or worked on a kibbutz. So my friend Wendy and I chose the easy option and spent a month travelling around Europe by train. To be honest, we didn't really do that much planning as to where we would go or what we would do. Between us, we had a copy of the Europe by Train book and the Thomas Cook Rail timetable. So we just mapped out a rough route, starting on the overnight ferry from Harwich to the Hook of Holland and ending on the hovercraft back to the UK from France. From memory, our Interrail Pass gave us the option to visit 21 European countries plus Morocco, but rather than rush around and see very little, we took it a bit easier, still saw very little in the grand scheme of things, but visited seven countries and stayed in nine different towns or cities. Although I say seven countries, but in Switzerland we only had about an hour to spend between trains and left the station solely to take a photo of Lake Lucerne. Looking back, it's bizarre to think about how we actually travelled then without the internet. We'd arrive in a new destination and our first port of call would be the tourist information office so that they could find us a bed for the night. We weren't, and to be honest, still aren't hostile fans, so we stayed in cheap hotels along the way, which the tourist info staff would arrange for us. Once we knew where we were going to be sleeping, we had to find somewhere to cash in our travellers' checks, and of course... As it was pre-Euros, every new country meant a new currency. Interrailing definitely sparked my interest in travelling, though, and in a way taught me how not to do it. I mean, when I look back at that trip, I can't believe how few photos I took. I think I only used two rolls of film in a month, whereas now I could easily take as many as that in a morning. One thing I did take a lot of, though, was clothes that I mostly never wore and things that I didn't use, 
whereas now I can pack pretty lightly. I also kept a diary, but from memory, it was pretty sparse and not very enlightening. It's currently in a box in my mum's attic, and I imagine the next time I read it, I'll cringe at my teenage recollections along the lines of, went to Sintra for the afternoon. It was nice. If blogging had been a thing in 1988, I would not have been very good at it. So even though I haven't been into rowing again, I do love to travel by train and have been on a few epic rail journeys over the years, including the Indian Pacific from Sydney to Perth in the cheap seats. So perhaps one day I'll recreate that trip from the summer of 88. I like the way her trip seemed quite similar to mine, although it was longer in duration. She still didn't see as much as modern travellers would and had the same kind of vague description of them. She also mentioned the film cameras. I mean, if we had to do that now, I can imagine half my backpack being full of rolls of film or having to stay longer in a city just so I could, you know, wait for the pictures to come back from the chemist. I mean, I could do it at the same time as I do my laundry, but, you know. But you can certainly forget about video and posting to Instagram stories. Booking hotels via the tourist information office, multiple currencies, traveller's checks, though I was aware of them. Don't think I've ever used a traveller's check and I'm not entirely convinced I could easily describe the concept without looking it up. But at the time, it was one of the most secure ways of obtaining foreign currency, or at least buying goods and services in a country that used a currency that wasn't your own, which happened more often in those days because there were far more currencies. Someone else who took an interrail trip in this period, and indeed even earlier than Alison, is Matthew Woodward. You may know him as On The Rails. He's a very knowledgeable train buff with decades of experience, and it's an honour to have him contribute to my pod. His first interrail trip took place while I was still at primary school which probably makes us both feel old. Uh, I actually did Interrail twice uh, when I was a student, first time in 1985 and second time in 1987. Interrail back then was the rite of passage. We didn't have those long-haul destinations um, that, that people have as a choice today. Uh, a trip around Europe for 30 days uh, was, was the way to, way to go. Obviously, it's a long time ago, um, found nearly 40 years, which I, I find totally astonishing. Where did that time go? Um, so I, my memories are a bit hazy in places. Um, I remember, though, very, very vividly, the brown ticket that I bought at my local railway station, totally analogue. You wrote where you were going to go, wrote your destination, and someone stamped it, and, and that was it, and you just kept on going like that. Um, preparation for the trip back then, didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, there was a book you could buy uh, about interrailing. I think it was independently published. Uh, it told you the destinations, the, how it all worked, uh, and I used that as the, the planning tool. Um, went to my local army surplus shop, bought a rather tacky red rucksack with a like one of those metal frames and hideous nylon uh, thing. Um, and then made the other critical purchase, which was the Thomas Cook uh, international timetable, uh, the details of all the key trains, where, when, how in Europe and a bit further afield as well, I think. Final thing I remember taking with me was a cassette recorder. I wanted to make a diary of my travels and it was a great experience doing that. The really sad thing is that I can't find the tape. It's somewhere in my attic and I'm still looking for it. So back in 85, uh, my first journey, that's the one I'm going to talk about uh, because I think that's the that, you know, it's, it's that much more impressionable when you do something for the first time. Amongst my friends, there were two ways of doing it, or two kind of tribes. The first were the sensible types. They planned a few places they want to go, uh, arts, you know, culture, and a nice paced mini holiday around Europe over a month. The second type were the madmen like me, and for me, uh, it was all about distance. Uh, how far could you go on this one little brown ticket? I should say I went with two friends uh, back in 85, and I think that was the right way to do it. Any more, it would have been um, cumbersome, uh, but it was great having a couple of people you knew as fighter cover. Uh, you know, I remember you know, typically getting on some of these long-distance trains. You'd send one person to the middle of the carriage to pass the rucksack through the window, and then the other two would each take an end of the carriage and bundle in, uh, doing our best to get the seats before they all ran out. So three people was good. The route we took back then um, was north, south, east and west. Uh, started off uh, with a foray into uh, West Germany, East Germany and a trip down the corridor to Berlin to experience the wall, which I'm pleased I did uh, before it went. Uh, and from Germany, we then headed south pretty quickly 
through France and uh, crossing the border to Rouen into Spain um, and down to Gibraltar. Uh, Gibraltar back then felt like home. It probably still does today, but it was just nice to spend two two days watching, you know, watching people behave like they did at the pub back at home, red letter boxes and all that kind of stuff. And with that done, we then uh, totally alienated ourselves and took the ferry across to uh, Morocco and down Marrakesh and Casablanca. Uh, an eye-opening experience. Uh, never been ripped off so many times in my life, and it taught me a lot. So it was kind of great to get that done early on in the trip. From Morocco, we headed back up into Europe and around France, down Italy, uh, crossing over from Brindisi uh, to Corfu, another little stopover in Corfu to make it feel like we'd had a bit of a holiday, I think maybe three or four days, and then the ferry onwards to Athens. Back then, you could actually get a train from uh, Greece into Turkey. So we took the train uh, from uh, Athens via Thessaloniki to Istanbul. And I have to say, arriving in Istanbul by train, uh, you know, as an impressionable student, was a big thing back then. Really, you know, I I described it on the journey as an afternoon in Asia because it just felt we travelled a long, long way. Uh, and we had back then, you know, by train, that was quite a trip. I don't think that many uh, interrailers went to Istanbul, quite a lot as far as Athens, but but not further east. I might be wrong. Uh, so Istanbul was a just amazing time. And then after uh, running out of money, we headed back to Vienna, where I was ill for a couple of days, food poisoning from a fish dish uh, that I negotiated on too hard in Istanbul. Uh, and when I recovered, we went north up to as far as Copenhagen, uh, and back down uh, to France and back over the New Haven Dieppe ferry. So that was a great journey. I can't remember the mileage, but it was uh, probably as far as you could go. So do I have any regrets about the, the experience and the trip? No, absolutely not. You know, 85 was the primer for me doing it again in 1987. Uh, just a bit more confident and a bit more pushing in the things I wanted to do and see. Um, and... You know, my life might have been different if I hadn't done interrail. Uh, after 20 years of wearing a suit, I I put it in put it in a wardrobe and decided to become a traveller and a writer. And that's what I've done for the last decade. Uh, the, the only regret I've got maybe about interrail is actually, sounds trivial now, but selling that little brown book back to British Rail, who would pay you £10 to, for the market research aspect of the journeys that you've taken. And I really wish I kept it. I mentioned last time that... While we knew of the rail timetable book when we went on our interrail trip in 2000, we didn't take it because it was way too bulky. Rather, we just relied on information at train stations. These days, of course, there's a dedicated interrail app that links in with your ticket. But even without that, timetable information is very easily accessible online. For most countries. For future reference, I still haven't been able to ascertain if the train from Banja Luka to Sarajevo in Bosnia-Herzegovina exists never mind its frequency or regularity, but that's something for me to worry about later. If Becca the Owlet is listening to this, just pretend I never said that, okay? What I like about Matthew's trip is his reasoning. It's basically, I have a ticket that covers Europe, let's cover Europe, and literally making the most out of the pass as you possibly can. But Morocco's not in Europe, you may say, and here we're going, it's on my interrail pass, so why the heck not? Value for money. Tick. As an aside, because Matthew mentioned it, I had a chat once with my friend Laura, who is A, a millennial, and B, American, about what the most significant and important event that took place in our respective lifetimes was. Hers? Obvious. Mine? I maintain, and will maintain until my dying day, unlike, you know, assuming that we don't make contact with alien civilizations or something, that to people like me, the fall of the Berlin Wall was more significant than 9-11, in a way for similar reasons, because everything we'd grown up with was now different. It's just that, for us, it was a positive thing, and we experienced those 12 years of hope. And to be honest, it might explain why Gen X are stereotypically so jaded and cynical. Could have been, should have been, so much better. We experienced what could have happened, and then my parents' generation fucked everyone over. Which is ironic, as they're the original hippies. Anyway, what is clear from these interrailers is that my style of travel doesn't seem to be that unusual in this context, and the flexibility of an interrail pass means you can do all manner of bizarre journeys that when you try to explain them, seem to make no sense. And so it was with my 2019 trip. Now, you might want to get a map of Europe out for this and raise an eyebrow at the sheer absurdity of ever-increasing circles. I saw a lot of Cologne railway station. It's true. 
Without reference to how long I spent in any of these places, and without reference to the day trips I took from them, my two months travelling saw me overnighting in order Strasbourg, Trier, Cologne, Brussels, Toulon, Neon, near Geneva, might be pronounced Nyon, never did work it out, Liechtenstein, Maastricht, Bremen, Leipzig, Augsburg, Bologna, Ljubljana, Olomouc, Banska Stiavnica, Vienna, Nuremberg, Liège, Calais, London, I'll explain that one in my next pod, Rennes, La Rochelle, Alicante, Andorra, Toulouse, Nice, Cluj-Napoca and Bratislava. After my interrail ticket expired, I continued to Kozice and Budapest. Immediately prior to my trip, I'd also spent some time in Copenhagen and Malmo, and with hindsight probably should have got me a three-month interrail pass rather than a two-month one, but meh. I had originally thought to go to Belgrade to visit my pen pal Yelena there, but as it turns out, due to maintenance and general wear and tear, there was only one line operating into Belgrade, that was the one from Ljubljana, so onward connections would have been to relatively inconvenient places. I could have hopped over to Sofia and onward to the end of Turkey, channelling my inner Matthew Woodward, but I have my eye on a different trip that way that crosses the very short and oft-forgotten border between Turkey and Azerbaijan. But that leads me to my very first discussion topic. Border crossings. I mentioned in my last pod about my excitement at crossing international borders. Obviously, on an interrail trip around Europe, mostly within the Schengen area, this meant that most of the borders I crossed were seamless and inconsequential. I did make a point of actively walking across a couple, though, and enjoying the freedom of movement that they provided. I've done two entire podcasts about border crossings before, albeit in the very early days of this podcast, so you might not have listened to them. At some point, I might go over some of the topics on my early podcasts, but not right now. Anyway, the most scenic border I crossed was possibly that between Switzerland and Liechtenstein, a border I crossed it twice on foot because trains don't go to Verduz at weekends. It's quite a border. It runs along the River Rhine, and the bridge I crossed between Buchs and Scharn offered a fabulous view north to clear skies and huge mountains. It was pretty much exactly what you'd expect the view to look like if I said you were crossing a large river in Switzerland. On the bridge was a small plaque telling you you'd crossed the border, but otherwise there was no other indication. While neither are in the EU, they are in a customs union with each other, and both in the Schengen Free Movement area, making the journey delayed only by taking photographs. Another border I took pictures of, albeit for very different reasons, was that between Italy and Slovenia, at Gorizia Novogorica. In my childhood, this was a very hard border, being part of the Iron Curtain that divided Europe into the two opposing camps. Even though Yugoslavia, RIP, wasn't a Soviet puppet state and had more liberal travel arrangements, it still would have been an effort to cross the border by land here. And while I did wander along the main road to take pictures and ponder over the changes at the remains of the guard posts, the most interesting part of the border is visible at Europe Square, a little walk outside the centre of Gorizia and right next to the railway station in Nova Gorica, which itself is a little way out of the town centre on the Slovenia side. It's hard to imagine now how this border would have looked back in the day. The railway station would have literally opened out onto it. And while there wasn't a huge wall here as there was in Berlin, there was very definitely a secure fence preventing access. These days, it's a large pedestrianised square with information boards and floor plaques depicting and delineating what was here. Foot selfies were taken. Thanks were given. Another border I specifically visited was the Dreilandepunkt, the tri-point between Belgium, Netherlands and Germany. It's also the highest point in the Netherlands, which always amuses me when my Dutch friends visit it and their friends go, well done, that must have been an effort. To find it, I mean. It's a bit of a theme park, not going to lie, with lots of food stalls, small amusement park type rides, that sort of thing. The tri-point itself is marked with a small stone column, which is popular with locals taking pictures. It is also popular with wasps. I had to venture a short way across a border that no longer exists to eat my lunch in peace in what used to be neutral Mereznet. Oh god, this is a niche meeting of several of my interests. In brief, Mereznet was a triangular-shaped piece of land around 1.5 kilometres by 5 kilometres, making an area of around 3.6 kilometres squared, slightly less than twice the size of Monaco, or, for Antipodeans, a tenth the size of Norfolk Island. It was centred around an old zinc mine which, after the Napoleonic Wars, both the Netherlands and Prussia wanted control of. It was right on the border of both in the newly defined structure of Europe. It was decided to keep it neutral and be run by both in a sort of condominium. 
a bit like Vanuatu, but without the road chaos. At some point, they thought they'd come back to it and sort out a more permanent agreement. Anyway, they, uh, they never did. When Belgium became independent, they took over from the Dutch in the agreement, but a resolution wasn't achieved until 1914, when the Germans invaded it. Two world wars later and the whole area was ceded to Belgium, although by this time the pressing need to have a zinc mine had quite abated. Anyway, I walked across the border into Germany and a few kilometres later ended up in Aachen. Aix-la-Chapelle, a city like Ljubljana or Laibach that brings to mind A-level history. And Mereznet. And where I lost my hat in the cathedral. To be fair, it's a very glorious cathedral and you definitely need to visit, but I went in wearing a hat and decided I probably shouldn't be wearing a hat in a religious building for ill-defined cultural reasons, so I held on to it. After about ten minutes, I realised I was no longer holding on to it. No idea what happened to it. I was irked. I was given that hat by someone on my hike across Great Britain a few months earlier when I lost the hat that I had had in Bellingham, in Northumberland, after taking it off in a pub and forgetting its existence. Not all the borders I crossed were between countries in the EU and in Schengen. As I say, I went to Switzerland, actually went twice, once on a day trip to Baal from Strasbourg, where I spent a reasonable amount of time taking selfies next to road signs saying Barfusserplatz, because obviously, and not buying anything, because I don't care how artisanal it would be, I'm not paying £24 for a burger at a pub and an extra £6 for chips. And once for a couple of days near Geneva and to and from Liechtenstein, which honestly half paid for my entire interrail ticket, but I'll talk about that next time. What I will say is that although Switzerland isn't in the EU, it is in Schengen, so I was expecting to be stopped and have my baggage searched at least to make sure I wasn't smuggling anything interesting into the country. But no. While my arrival into Baal's main station was at a separate platform and we were guided through a building that had obviously once been a customs office, it was on my visit more a setting for an episode of Changing Rooms or another one of those TV DIY programmes. The only border I think that I was ever stopped at, and this was generic and not personal, was that between Spain and Andorra. This is something really odd, and makes as much logical sense as Northern Ireland being in a unique position to benefit from EU trade, but not the rest of the UK. If you look on a map, you'll notice Andorra only has borders with, and is thus only accessible from, France and Spain. There are also no airports in the country. And yet, despite this, it is not a member of the EU, nor is it a member of the Schengen area. This means that not only does it have border controls, Yes, despite only being able to access it from an EU state. Indeed, on the bus entering, we stopped for maybe 20 minutes by the side of the road in the suburbs while the police came on and poked around a bit. Cars were passing all the time on the road next to us. But also many of the EU benefits don't apply. Like, you know, mobile phone roaming agreements. Take note of this sort of thing. Might catch you unawares. I say not personal. No border guard checked either me or my luggage on entry. I do not have a stamp from Andorra in my passport. And on exiting the country, I walked past the border post with nary a mither. This border crossing was interesting in its own way, actually, as it was exactly how you'd imagine it. A very clear blue sky, bright sunshine, lots of snow on the mountains, very crisp air. The road was clear, slightly slippery, but only to an extent that would only concern me. And the only snag was the lack of pavements. The bus dropped me off at the top of a hill in the village of El Pas de la Casa, which seems to exist almost entirely as a way for the French to buy tax-free goods, and my aim was to walk down to the railway station at the even smaller village of L'Hospitalet Près d'Andorre, some 13 kilometres away in France. Just after the customs post, I got beeped by an Andorran who, it turns out, had a girlfriend in the UK. I'm sure he said in Luton, of all places, and he took me to the larger town of Axleth Term, from which there were more trains. I'm not a hitchhiker. This doesn't count. Speaking of Andorra, and I'll come back to there in a little while, one of my long-term bucket list items is to visit the capital city of every European country. For a given definition of capital, semantically three European countries don't have one, and there are many arguments about the location of the fourth. But Interrail is a fabulous way to do this with relative ease, since many of them are directly linked, making it a very easy way to hop around the region. However, it's not always that simple. Some of these countries are relatively small. And obviously, I'm the sort of person to get excited about San Marino just as much as I am about Spain. Well, probably more so, actually. Spain's not my favourite country in Europe. There are six countries with a size below a thousand square kilometres, excluding Malta, given that it's an island and therefore even if it had trains it would be beyond the scope of an average interrailer. Three of the other five don't have a public railway service, 
that's Andorra, San Marino and the Vatican City, and a fourth, Liechtenstein, seems to only have a weekday commuter service. The only one of them to have a regular, frequent standard rail service is Monaco. So it did. Monaco is also not my favourite country in Europe. I will say I only had a few hours there on a short day trip from Nice. It's literally right there. And it rained pretty much the whole time. There isn't a whole lot to really do, apart from gawp at the tourists are outside the famous casino building, like they'd let the likes of me into that sort of place anyway, and take a loop walk around the streets that one weekend a year make up the Formula One motor racing circuit. The yachts in the harbour are as grand as you'd expect. The city itself, whisper it quietly, it's mostly quite ugly. And I suspect if I had to live there, I'd go to Nice rather a lot. It's also a very hilly place. The railway station is built underground at the top of the hill, a steep climb from the harbour. Note that Monaco, being a city-state, is one of those countries which semantically and technically doesn't have a capital. Monte Carlo is a quarter, not a separate administrative entity, in the same way St James, as the local council ward that contains the UK's Houses of Parliament, is a part of Westminster. And London. But not London. It's complicated. I've done podcasts on that. Anyway. San Marino, in the northeast of Italy, was somewhere I tried to visit on my abortive trip back in 2002. I'd overnighted in the seaside town of Rimini, but social anxiety, mainly a fear of having to ask for tickets in a foreign language, made me chicken out. So, 17 years later, I wanted to make sure this wouldn't happen again. And it wouldn't, because not only was all the information about the journey available online, there were many posters and signs around the railway station at Rimini telling you exactly how to do it. San Marino is an odd place. It claims to be the oldest independent state in the world, founded by a Christian refugee in 301 AD, who set up a monastery here in the impenetrable hills. I'm not quite sure how even the Roman Empire didn't notice or care about it, never mind any of the many subsequent invaders, so I'm taking all of this with a pinch of salt. It's about 10 kilometres from Rimini, mostly flat, but then within the borders the land rises some 700 metres. While there's settlements scattered around the country, most people go to the town itself, a series of steep cobbled streets surrounded by stone walls and old buildings. Many of the buildings are gun shops. Seriously, this place is the place to go in Europe if you need a rifle or gun. Having said which, there are some great views from the battlements across the hills and mountains of that part of Italy. Very worth going, even if it's just to stand there and go, ooh, that's pretty. Andorra is similarly accessible only by bus, due to its location also in the mountains. I got there by bus from Barcelona railway station, once again ensuring the only reason I visited Barcelona was to change transport. This, interestingly, is also the only reason I've ever visited Venice. I've similarly changed trains there twice, once on this trip between Bologna and Gorizia, and once on my 20 trip between Trieste and, well, oddly, Rimini. What can I say about Andorra? It's not very big, but it's also bigger than you'd imagine. I wasn't staying in the capital, rather I was halfway along pretty much the only road in the country, in a hostel recommended to me by Hostel Geeks on Instagram. Hostel Tart here. I still follow them on Instagram as it happens. Lovely little place, though they're better catered for the snow sport market than for random solo barefoot backpackers. And indeed, while I arrived in the rain, overnight on my first night there, we had a nice flurry of snow that ended up being a foot or two deep. Foot selfies in the snow were taken. Yes. It is a place you'd go for either skiing or the scenery. I imagine there'd be some great hikes in the mountains in June. As it was, I was there in early November and just passing through, so my one full day in the place was spent walking around its capital, Andorra la Vela. It means Andorra the town, as opposed to, well, Andorra the country. And if that seems odd and unimaginative, consider the capital cities of Mexico, Guatemala and Luxembourg. Again, there wasn't a lot to do really there, but it's a decent enough place to stock up on provisions. Some of the buildings are quite odd. The Parliament building, if I recall correctly, is very modernist. And the views are good. I'll talk about the beer in the next podcast. That's a whole different kettle of, well, not just hops. Similar in location to Andorra, but much more accessible, especially on weekdays, and with less of the admin, is Liechtenstein. I entered and left on foot from the Swiss town of Books on a bridge across the Rhine, as I mentioned earlier. I was staying in a youth hostel a couple of kilometres up river, and the walk along is also very pretty, almost like a canal with a dike running alongside, with fantastic views across the Alps. As I say, it's as picturesque as you'd imagine. 
Given the size of the country, the main settlements kind of merge into one. I wasn't quite sure where the border between the districts of, for example, Sean and Vaduz was, or even where the hostel and the football stadium were. But I certainly passed by the government buildings. The parliament building looks a bit like a triangle and the main castle high on the hill. It's a pretty expensive place, which is why I was staying in the youth hostel and why I ate there. Fairly functional, not very exciting, but equally edible and affordable. I'm not saying budget, I'm saying affordable. This is Liechtenstein we're talking about. I did not visit the Vatican City on this trip, but I was there on my Italy trip in 2002 when I nearly got arrested in St Peter's Square for swearing at a policeman. We won't talk about that, but he was being a jobsworthy twat, so he deserved it. I was in Liechtenstein for two reasons. One, because of my ambition, as I say, to visit the capital city of every European country, but also, two, because of a bucket list item to watch an international football, soccer, match between two countries' teams who didn't have a cat in hell's chance of actually winning anything. And it just so happened Liechtenstein were playing Armenia at home at just the right time. So I... The stadium, Rhine Park, literally on the banks of the river, possibly therefore the nearest national stadium to an international border... Not that that would be hard in Liechtenstein, because it's about four miles wide at its widest point. Two of those miles, mountains, was only about a third full, and mostly with Armenians. Who knew there was such a large Armenian diaspora in nearby Switzerland? The match finished 1-1, and the chap who scored for Liechtenstein was Yannick Frick. He's the son of the chap I used to buy a lot in Championship Manager, Mario Frick, back in the days when I did my original interrail trip. Apt. Football wasn't the only sport I watched on the trip, although my other experience I didn't plan ahead for. I was in the Czech city of Olomouc for three nights and was browsing around things to do. Turns out on one of the nights I was there, the local ice hockey team were playing a local derby against Viktovica, based in nearby Ostrava. And as you all know, I'm rather fond of ice hockey, so I popped on over. No one questioned why I was there, almost as if it was perfectly natural for an alien to come wandering by and watch some ice hockey. The website icehockey24.com tells me that I was one of 4,481 people in that stadium, which means twice as many people watched Olympics lose 4-3 in overtime as watched the Liechtenstein-Armenia football match. Make of that what you will. Speaking of sport, back in Switzerland I went to the Olympic Museum, which is quite an extensive place set in some luscious grounds overlooking Lake Geneva, and with a series of modern art sculptures outside that take some glancing at to recognise. They're all representations of different Olympic sports. The setting really shows you what the Olympic Committee does with its money. The museum itself contains over 10,000 items and is roughly divided into three sections. Firstly, you take a tour through Olympic history, from the original Greek Games to the modern Olympic movement. There's a small section with information and stats about all of the modern editions of the Games, including the Winter Olympics and the Paralympics. Then there's a whole series of displays around objects relating to the Games, including you know, famous athletes' equipment, signed memorabilia and overviews of competitors. Lastly, there's an interactive section where you can compare yourself to Olympic athletes and take part in certain events to see how you stack up. I did not stack up well. Also in Switzerland, I realised I could visit CERN, the European Organisation for Nuclear Research. The acronym is French, because nearly all European acronyms are. I didn't know you could take tours of this place. I assumed it was all protected by nanobots in case of escaping Hawking radiation. Apparently not. This is, after all, where the Large Hadron Collider is centred, amongst other things. There's two parts of the visit, a wander through a small museum with information boards about what CERN does, and a brief overview of high-level physics, and then poking around in the older buildings that used to be used for actual experiments. You're taking on a guided tour of this bit, because they don't just let anyone in to see this stuff, and you certainly don't get to see anything that you can break, but you do get to see the Synchrosilatron, the first particle accelerator from CERN, operational in 1957 but not push any buttons on it. They don't want random balls of chaotic barefoot backpacker energy messing with anything. They don't actually like barefoot backpackers at all. Their FAQ says you can't wear anything with an open toe. I had to go to the supermarket in Toulon a couple of days beforehand and buy some cheap knock-off Converse just for the occasion. I still have them. I think I've worn them about ten times. Mostly because of snow. And jury service. One of the reasons to travel around Europe is to visit all the old things. And let's face it, aside from Turkey and what is commonly known as the Middle East, there aren't that many places with a variety of historical sites across millennia in such a small area. And while certainly Iraq is on my places to visit, you can't get there on an interrail ticket. This is not the main reason I haven't been there yet, though it would make it easier if I could. Anyway, 
On my 2019 trip, I passed by many old towns and ancient sites, some by accident, some by design. The vast majority are easy to get to by train. Mont Saint-Michel, as you'll find out next time, is not one of these, but I'm still glad I visited. I don't know how much you know about Mont Saint-Michel, but it's pretty much a castle, on a rock, on a tidal island, accessible these days by Causeway, just off the north coast of Normandy in France. There's not a lot to do there, and obviously it's full of tourists, but some places are popular for a reason, and if you like very pretty old buildings set in remarkable locations, then it should be on your hit list. The buses drop you off on the edge of the mainland, at the car parks, and then you can either get a shuttle bus in or walk along the causeway to the rock. The latter obviously gives you a good vista of it against the flat sea and the sandbanks. Northern France is also home to the oldest site I saw on my trip, the huge area of ancient stones at Karnak. You've heard of Stonehenge, and if you listen to this podcast you'll have heard of Kalanish, sites with stone circles set in fields, with other remains of ancient people scattered around a radius of several kilometres. Karnak is less structured, for sure, but considerably bigger. Its main drag is a series of rows of stone monoliths and dolmens stretching out for a good kilometre, but that's just one of several sites where stones are just... standing. There's a visitor centre with displays and information to make sense of it a bit, but ultimately we don't know who built them, don't know when, don't know why. All we know is that they're from around the 4th millennium before the birth of Jesus, so probably contemporaneous with places like the Nap of Hoar and the Stunning Stones of Senes on Orkney, and slightly older than Kalanish and Stonehenge. There's estimated to be around 3,000 of them on the several sites, but there's no way I was going to count them. The thing with a place like this is that it's really interesting to see, but remember that's all it is. It's just lots and lots of stones. If you like ancient monuments, cool. I happen to, but I know that other people might get bored after about 10 minutes. Karnak is in Brittany, in the far northwest of France, in a similar place to an ancient area known as Armorica, or Armorica. I've never known how to pronounce that. And if the idea of a place of ancient Gauls with a many a fetish in a small village in Armorica sounds familiar, be aware that yes, that was a huge influence on my humour and writing style, so obviously I'm going to make a beeline to a place like that. Speaking of Romans, as I said earlier, my trip took me through Rimini, where I overnighted in 2002. This time I paid more attention, and I had time after coming down from San Marino to take a wander through the city. What's interesting is how little of it I remembered, so that might be because of how much of that trip I've conveniently forgotten. It's not that large a city, and to be honest, most of the visitors there are Italians visiting the seaside. Or San Marino, I guess. But obviously, being a city in Italy founded 268 years before the Common Era, there's going to be a lot more to it than sea and sand. Mainly Roman ruins, obviously. Including a huge archway that's pretty good for its age, a similarly respected bridge, and many ruins of buildings scattered around, just fenced off in little restrictive parks by the side of the road. I went to Rimini for practical reasons, but to be honest, any of the towns up this way will serve you if you want your take of historical monuments. I'd gone to Rimini as a day trip from Bologna, a city I'd spent an hour in on my 20 year trip, changing trains, and all I remember from it were columns. Well, as it turns out, Bologna has a lot of columns. It's the most well-known aspect of the city, I think, apart from Bolognese, which is a meat-based sauce generally never served with spaghetti, for the record. And by columns, what I actually mean are arcades and porticos. Many of the streets in the centre have pavements which are covered with a stone roof and lined with these columns, making not just a pretty wandering, but also one both dry and safe from traffic. The most famous is the stretch from the centre uphill to the Sanctuario de San Luca, St Luke's Basilica, which tradition states has 666 stone columns along its route. Apparently, the whole thing was built to protect the icon of the Madonna, not that one, as it was being transported there. I didn't count them. They are numbered, but the numbering isn't always sequential. The Basilica itself can be visited, though it does have limited opening times. It's an old church, late 17th century, that's about it. The view from it over the city is kind of limited a bit by trees. The city also has its first share of roomy plazas, old buildings, churches and four huge towers dating from either side of the 12th century, one of which was notable mainly because it provided me with an easy reference point to find a nearby decent craft beer bar. Another place I passed through my 2002 trip was Pisa, and weirdly I probably spent longer there than I did on this trip. Both times I was there to change trains, although this time it was part of a longer onward journey to Romania, whereas last time it was on my way back home from Florence. Pisa is, of course, famous for what seems to amount to an architectural blunder. One of those situations where an epic fail becomes an epic success. If only I could manifest the same energy. For those of you who are unsure, the famous Leaning Tower of Pisa 
isn't supposed to lean. It was built throughout the entire 13th century, and much of the 14th to be honest, and the original architect is in dispute. Not that it matters, because all parties are long dead by now. It's a bell tower to serve the nearby cathedral, and it leans because the ground is not firm enough to support its weight, or at least when built its foundations weren't strong enough to support its waist based on the ground conditions. It has been stabilised recently with a lean at just under 4 degrees, having previously reached around 5.5 degrees. I don't know how far a building has to lean in order to be stable, but these days, since its lean is what makes it notable, while we have the capability of making it properly erect these days, Oh my! Evidently tourism is more important than structural integrity. We have actively rewarded ineptitude just because it's old, and I don't know how I feel about that. Anyway, it was very dark when I got there, and I spent half my time taking photos of tourists taking photos of it. Influences in the wild. Obviously, I didn't go in it. I didn't in 2002 either. My memories of that visit were of a protest march through the centre of town. No idea what that was for. At the time, I just wanted to go home. I have a weird vibe with Italy. I really don't connect with the country, and yet it might well be my third or fourth most visited country after France and the USA. I'm going back in May. After Cyprus, me and Laura are visiting Milan and Lake Como. Lake Como. I feel so middle class. Maybe I'll visit the nearby town of Bellagio, the namesake of which, in Las Vegas, is the most expensive building I've ever had a Wii in. That's one of those weird and niche statistics that will probably never be beaten. Even with diarrhoea in Dubai, I managed to find a museum toilet. Ugh, disgusting. That's a tale for another podcast. It'll probably never be written. Another old place I passed through was Trier. It's one of those facets of history that I never quite get my head around, that the Romans controlled part of what is now Germany. Not a great deal of Germany, the mysterious yet highly significant Battle of the Teutoburg Forest put paid to that, but they did cross the Rhine and they did have some large towns on the Gothic frontier. One such is Trier, or as the Romans knew it, Augusta Trevororum. While seen in the UK as a bit of a cheesy male forename, Trevor here refers to the Germanic tribe of the Treveri, whose name seems to have been a reference to a flowing river, in this case the Moselle. Given the history and culture, this means that an important genre of French wine was created by a tribe of Trevors. But anyway, Trier has a number of important Roman ruins, including three bathhouses, an old Roman citadel, and an amphitheatre. Most of the sites are, in fairness, not much more than you know, slightly raised foundations, so, like ruins everywhere, you get a sense of a place rather than an actual experience, although part of a 2nd century Roman bridge over the river has been reincorporated into a more modern structure. One day, I might do a podcast on ruins we have all known and loved. Might do. Probably won't. Anyway, Trier's main Roman draw is the Porta Nigra, the Black Gate. It is made of quite a dark stone, especially when seen in contrast to most other Roman ruins. Built at the end of the 2nd century, the website Wiki Voyage tells me that it's the largest still-standing Roman gate north of the Alps. Which is quite a large area, to be honest, though I never quite know if that phrase is literal or if it just means not in Italy. Like, does it include Spain? I may be overthinking this. If you like your history a bit more modern, Trier has a museum in the house that Karl Marx was born in. Nice lad, if a bit too prone to arguing with authority figures in his youth. Well, I guess he'll grow out of that. Oh. I overnighted in Trier. I didn't overnight in the French town of Argen. Uh, rather, I passed through it on the way to catching an overnight bus from Toulouse. That was a long journey. Talk about that next time. Anyway, it's one of those I had some time to kill, so why not kill it here places. I'm very glad I did, to be honest. It was a nice little city with a cathedral, a couple of interesting ruins, and a large open space near a skate park with a huge aqueduct, the Pont Canal d'Ajon. It's just under 540 metres long, has 23 arches, is built from relatively local stone, and dates from 1849. It's on the famous Canal du Midi, well, an extension thereof, the Canal de Deux Mers, which provides a navigable waterway from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic by the Garonne River. Another French city I briefly passed through while changing trains, but which would be definitely worth a longer visit, is Nancy, in the northeast of France. I didn't know a lot about it, and I only ended up there accidentally, so I was unprepared for the sheer number and vista of old buildings there, especially around the central Place Stanislas, which is UNESCO listed. There's also a couple of large parks, including the square Parc de la Pépinière, which means nurseries, presumably in this case plant nurseries. Definitely a place I need to return to. Back in Germany, I had the same vibe on a day trip from Leipzig, itself a city worth a few days, with its religious buildings, including both the home of J.S. Tarkata and Fugue in D minor, and yes, you will know it if you hear it, Bach, 
and the church where the first demonstrations in 1989 happened, whose resonance quickly led to the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the world as we knew it, but we felt fine at the time. It's also full of museums. There was one I made a particular beeline for that documented life in communist East Germany and went into a whole level of detail about how it all ended. Spoiler. Largely chaotically, including one absolute huge miscommunication of intent and policy that made the end somewhat more sudden than you might have expected. But again, tale for another pod. As an aside though, it's remarkable to think that when Matthew and especially Alison made their interrail trips, the idea that barely two summers later you'd have been able to include Leipzig on your pass would have been thought laughable. Anyway, day trip from Leipzig to Erfurt and Weimar the latter being the most notable German city from my A-level history days. It was where the post-World War I constitution was signed and why that period is known as the Weimar Republic. But it's also a city of culture and architecture. The former has a lovely little old town area, several old cathedrals, preserved and in ruins, including the obviously photographed Balfusser Kirche, now a war memorial because it's in ruins due to us. A handful of museums, definitely worth a visit. Also in the neighbourhood is Buchenwald, another... I'm going to call it a war memorial, which is equally worth a visit, but for, shall we say, other reasons. That too is a tale for another podcast. One created by someone else. I suspect I am not the right person to be talking about that. But this is one of the nice things about Interrail. You get to spend time, however brief, in places you hadn't previously considered that might not even be that much off the beaten track, but because they're not major cities, you might overlook them. My trip also revealed just how popular ornate fountains are in Europe, Central Europe especially. Aachen, Bremen, Olomouz, Kozice, the list is endless. And by ornate I mean medieval, intricately carved and almost certainly with a huge amount of religious symbolism. Most of the places I've mentioned have been inland, but of course Europe is surrounded by the sea. Having an interrail ticket means I can really make the most of that or as much as you can do in the autumn. The bulk of my seaside experience was in Toulon, in the south of France. For reasons I'll come on to in the next pod, I wasn't alone for this section of the journey. Rather, I had my friend Lix in tow. They've appeared once on this pod, in an episode, talking about alcohol, which is very on brand, as much as my time with them was spent drinking alcohol and watching Netflix. Or drinking alcohol and musing at the insides of cute restaurants. Or drinking alcohol and... You get the idea. Not that I wasn't drinking alcohol regardless, but their tastes are more expensive than mine. I'll talk about that next time as well. But one of their desires was to spend time at sea and have a photo shoot there because they're very much a... They're a Nixie as opposed to my dryad nature. So while I grew up by the sea, it's a bit of an alien world. Anyway, as it turns out, we didn't manage to get to many decent beaches. There was a small one on the edge of Toulon as well as one in Marseille. Still, we saw the sea a lot and it was pretty good weather down there too, which helped. And that part of France is, of course, very close to Monaco, as mentioned earlier, and later on the trip I spent a couple of nights in nearby Nice. My overriding feel of the whole region is that it's probably nicer if you have the money to appreciate it. It's nice in Nice, as the Stranglers once said. And now I'm wondering just how far I can push that vibe. I didn't do it with Nancy. Obviously. Actually, most of the seaside I went to was in France. I'm not quite sure why this was. I guess a country that shape and size and that location is going to make it easy to visit appealing shorelines. That said, while the weather in Toulon and Nice was, consult the thesaurus, pleasant, you already know it rained in Monaco. This was much more typical. I overnighted one night in Calais, not somewhere really noted in the UK as anything other than a place to pass through on the way to somewhere else, or, in the old days, as an easy place to visit a French supermarket to stock up on some cheap booze. However, it is a place I've even done a short-to-camera video piece on in my Everywhere is Interesting series on YouTube. No idea if it's gone live yet, because I'm not the one in control of my YouTube account. But anyway. It's been known as a seaside resort since the 19th century. It's got a large beach and a loadable lighthouse. Newly installed on my visit, as in literally the day before I turned up, near the shoreline and the centrepiece of a revamp of the whole seafront area, is a dragon. It's not a small thing either. It reaches 15 metres in height, it's over 15 metres in length, and it has a wingspan of 25 metres. It literally breathes fire, smoke and water, And it moves up to four kilometres per hour. It's one of the more recent designs by a chap called Francois de la Rosière and his La Machine Company, which make large mechanical animals, as you do. They're noted especially for one called La Princesse, which is a 15 metre spider 
that walked through Liverpool in the 2008 European Capital of Culture celebrations and was later seen in other cities around the world. Anyway, Calais. It rained the whole time I was there, quite torrentially in Plapches. It also rained. La Rochelle. Very hard. If you remember my last episode, you'll note that La Rochelle is historically quite an important place for me, personally, as it's the nearest larger urban centre to where my first fiancé lived, Laure, the woman I travelled around on my previous interrail trip with. It's a place I know well, but not for a long time. You might ask how it felt to visit after so long. Well, I got wet. And lost. It's actually quite a pleasant enough town, set by the harbour side, where there's a couple of old buildings and structures and a weird modern art globe of all the Francophone countries. It's just... I don't know, it's, it's one of those places full of middle-class British tourists, and was ever thus even back in 2000, so... Uh, by the way, I didn't bump into Law. As far as I know, she's in a relationship and has two kids and a host of chickens somewhere near Paris these days. Just south of La Rochelle, and connected by the train, is the town of Châtelain-Plage. Plage, in French, means beach. The town has quite a long expanse of it. It's very cool, exactly the sort of place you'd go if you wanted a day at the small seaside town to chill and build sandcastles, paddle in the sea and generally pretend you're about seven years old. It's the hometown of my friend Layla, Law's best friend from childhood, the one who married a Scotsman and now whinges about the weather in Edinburgh. On this trip, though, the rain was too hard, so I didn't go there. Take that, Layla. I did get to spend time on a French beach in good weather, though. Oddly enough, a tad further north. I had a few very calming and grounded moments on the beach at Karnak just before exploring the Standing Stones. There weren't many people around, not much noise, so it was a great moment to just chill, close my eyes and stand on the sand and the edge of the tides, appreciating the world for what it is. All that said, my trip did have me visit one genuine seaside resort. And we're talking beach, we're talking sunshine, we're talking high-rise hotels, cheesy entertainment, we're talking pubs and clubs, stag and hen nights. We're talking somewhere whose very name causes a reaction to most Brits. The nature of that reaction is quite variable. And I only went on a day trip, I only spent a few hours there. But a few hours is quite enough to get a feel for the place. Oh yes. Benidorm isn't on the Spanish rail network. It's accessible by tram from the nearby city of Alicante, which itself is definitely worth a visit on its own. It's a city with old streets, a large harbour and an interesting castle on a hill with a small museum and very impressive views over the region. The town of Benidorm is... Now, it's actually two places. Old Town Benidorm feels quite communal, with narrow streets and locals, shops and Spanish children running everywhere. The rest of the town, however... I mean, not going to lie, beach is huge, with a long promenade alongside giving easy access at any point. From a distance, even the high-rise hotel blocks just off the promenade seem in keeping. I was there on a Tuesday in November, and even so it was rammed with drunk Brits. I'd hate to think what it'd be like on a Saturday afternoon in July. I popped into an entertainment venue, kind of like a cabaret club, and indeed the one often used in episodes of the 2010 TV comedy drama series named After the Town, where you had one washed-up crooner, English, singing, in English, to the masked throng, who were English, who sang back. At one point, he even did Sweet Caroline. Obviously. I had a Guinness. This was not a place for artisanal Spanish craft beers. I low-key think I'd like to stay in a resort place like this, for a couple of nights anyway, just for the crack, you know? Like, it's so very much not my scene, but equally it's culturally interesting, and also sometimes I have to push myself out of my middle-class privilege and visit places that are genuinely populist. I spent two nights in Skegness during the pandemic restrictions and didn't hate it, though that itself was also in October, so probably didn't show the place in its... I'm going to say best light, but that might be the wrong phrase. I guess on that note, I should call time on this pod. It's getting a bit long. Next time I'll continue this theme, sorry if you're bored of it, but I'm going to take a more holistic look at Interrail itself, looking at topics like accommodation, admin, and things that can go wrong, rather than destinations and things to see. And yes, things did go slightly awry on my trip, but I survived, clearly. Until then, remember to pack a raincoat on your travels, and if you're feeling off-colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. The theme music is Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. 
Previous episodes are available on your podcast service of choice and show notes are available on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, tweet me at rtwbarefoot, email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com or look for me on Instagram, Discord, YouTube or Facebook. Uh, Don't forget to sign up for my newsletter and if you really like what I do, you can slip me the cost of a beer through my Patreon in return for access to rare extra content. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now. Thank you.